Good morning. Um, if you were here last week, you may remember we introduced a giving liturgy, which we're going to be introducing or doing now in between our last song and the scripture reading. Um, and this is a part of our generosity practice that we have been um, exploring together. So um, love for you guys to read this with me. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus, to spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in, generos in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. Good morning. Our central text today is from Philippians 1, 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name's Chaz, if we've never met before. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, so this past week, uh, on Monday actually, the uh, state-controlled Russian station, uh, Russia Today, released a video of an American date detainee, Paul Whelan. He's a Marine veteran who, in 2018, was uh, arrested on espionage charges and then sentenced to, I think, 16 years in prison. And they released a video of him this week. Did anybody see that? A few of you maybe have, but uh, it showed him sewing garments, interacting with other uh, Russian prisoners. And at one point, one of the journalists from Russia Today came over to him and tried to interview him, and he refused. It was polite, 
but he refused. Why did he do that? Why did he refuse? Because he doesn't want the world to be filled with sort of propaganda that shows him having a grand old time in Russian prison with all his new friends. That's not true of him. And ultimately, he sort of paid the price on that. You could see it later in the video. But when the video came out, if you imagine, if you're one of his loved ones, what are you doing? (laughs) I mean, you're just waiting to get your eyes on him. You haven't seen him, at least in anything, since 2020. And his brother said this. He said, I wish I could see Paul under better circumstances. But it was good to see him again and to see the fight remains in his eyes. It's good to know that Paul remains unbowed. What a word. While Paul Whelan remains unbowed and certainly resolute in seeking his release, 2,000 years ago, there was another Paul in prison, the Apostle Paul. And there were many people who were worried about him in the church of Philippi. And so they sent and dispatched a man named Epaphroditus to go check on Paul in prison. It was a twofold reason why he did it. It is one, to provide for Paul because prisons didn't do that back then. But two, to do what? To lay eyes. How's Paul doing? Is he alive? Is he eating? How's his mental health, his emotional health? Does he think he's getting out? And Epaphroditus comes back after a harrowing journey, which he almost died. He comes back to this church of Philippi, and he's got the letter in hand. And and as he's unrolling this papyri document, the church would have gathered. I don't know if he read it, But somebody would have read it to this entire congregation, and they're hanging on every word. And after a few introductory remarks, we get to verse 12, and Paul gets into it. And he says, all right, you want to know how I'm doing? Here's it. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There's no word whatsoever about, hey, let me tell you what it's like to be chained 24-7 to a Roman imperial guard. Or the fact that when I go to the bathroom, I have no privacy. That mice are probably nibbling on my toes at night. You know, there's no food. There's inhumane treatment. I'm cold. I'm lonely. I'm anxious. I'm not sleeping well. And I don't even know if I'll ever get out. Not not a word. Not one word. With an unbowed face, the Apostle Paul Rather is rejoicing in prison and some of the most inhumane treatment that was happening to him because it's a defiant joy that he's got that he has put his hope that the gospel, in spite of everything that's happening around him, is actually going out and advancing. And I want to be clear. This is not to be confused with the Silver Linings playbook here. The Apostle Paul is literally experiencing joy because his hope is set beyond his circumstances. We started a new series last week, and if you weren't here, it's called Defiant Joy. And when I say the word defiant, what are the words that come to your mind? It's hostile, it's confrontational, it's rude, it's uncooperative. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, and this is why we need an entire fall to really unpack it, is is there a way in life to truly have an unsinkable joy? an impervious hope that in spite of what's going on around me, that I am not devastated by the circumstances, but rather my joy is defiant because my joy is not cooperating with the circumstances. My joy is swimming up in spite of that, and it's present, even in tears. What, are that, what would that look like for us to have that? This week, our installment in looking at that, because honestly, I'm praying this series would change my life because I don't really know that. 
And I don't think I'm alone in that. So this week, we're going to look at defiant joy in interrupted plans, defiant joy in opposition, because he was facing it, and defiant joy in God's defiant plan, where how God always seems to work in spite of crazy circumstances. So interrupted plans, opposition, and defiant plans. So let's take a look at the interrupted plans. Now, in 2009, I was at a Florida-Kentucky game, and for the record, uh, we were throttling them. It was 31 to nothing here just in the second quarter. I remember it well. Uh, but uh, I hate to use this word, but like the, our team's Moses, okay, our magnanimous leader, uh, the Heisman Trophy winner. Who am I talking about? Does anybody know? Tim, yes, thank you, son. I'm glad you know more about Tebow than Jesus. I'm a bad father, but uh, good job. Uh, way to go. I have trained you one, my young apprentice. Um, but in the second quarter, he took a hit and got knocked out. But he wasn't moving. He was just sitting on the ground, not moving, and annoyingly, the Kentucky fans lose their minds and cheer like they'd won the national championship. Like, that's why you lose so much, because you're losers. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but I'm sitting there, and around me, some of the Florida fans, I mean, some of them start crying. I mean, there was this collective gasp. Uh, and there was just this thought of, wow, is he going to get up? Is he, is he okay? But what else was happening? We've got a title run right now. Like, what happens if we lose Tebow? We're done. There's no way we'll survive. Well, if you and I Googled today, who are some of the world's top leaders in the history of humanity? The Apostle Paul shows up in the top five because he was this magnanimous leader. I mean, I don't think he can be underestimated. Whether you like the Apostle Paul or not, he was incredibly educated, very gifted. I mean, this is a man who walked into any city in the Greco-Roman world where Christianity was not even heard of and started new churches over and over and over again. He was their leader. And again, here's his church in Philippi, and like the Gator fans, like me, sitting in 09 wondering what's going to happen, they're wondering the same. I mean, our leader's down on the ground. He's not getting up. He's incarcerated, and there's no hope of him getting out. What's going to happen to him? But if, he could, if that happened to him, then maybe that could happen to me too. What if I get arrested? Or, particularly, what will happen to the movement? What's going to happen to Christianity? And so the Apostle Paul knows this as he's writing. He knows his audience is what? If you're in that situation, you're, you're anxious. Dial in, guys. It, you're anxious. You're worried. You're concerned. And Paul, if he had said something like, help, get me out. <laughs> I hate it in here. It's miserable. Well, he would have sunk their hopes immediately. But rather, he says, I want you to know, brothers, What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, one of the things we've been talking a lot about generosity is the church in Philippi was hands down the most financially generous church in all the New Testament. This is a church that put their money where their mouth was. They supported the Apostle Paul uh, and all these missionary journeys, but also helped even help plant other churches. They really cared about these things. And so when the Apostle Paul says these words, I want you to know everything that's happened to me is not stopping the advancement of the gospel, this was news beyond their wildest imaginations. How is that even possible? In spite of everything falling apart, how's the gospel going out? And I just want to stop real quick. Look, Christianity is not to be confused with Buddhism, where, you know, there's this idea of like, hey, suffering, let's just escape it, or it's an illusion, press on, mind over matter. 
Paul's not denying how hard things are. He's not saying nothing to see here or don't worry, be happy. <laughs> okay, I'll have that stuck in your head the rest of the weekend. In verse 17, he laid, we'll look at it later, he uses the word affliction, which means oppression, distress. It's been really hard. It's a tribulation. Paul knows it's really hard. He's not denying how vexing and how hard it's really been. But nevertheless, his joy is unsinkable because he's convinced of something his Lord said. And what did Jesus really say about the church? He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Even Roman chains with their great leader tied up can't stop. Now, why would he say this? Because here's Paul in chains saying all these things, but he's also recognizing the reality that literally every day with different shifts throughout the afternoon, a Roman soldier was chained to him 24-7. And, and we're told this is the imperial guard in verse 13. Uh, literally, this is the Roman Empire's navy seals. These are the literal bodyguards of Caesar himself. And so if you can imagine, he's chained to somebody every day and they're striking up conversations. Paul, you're a Roman citizen. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And he would have looked at him and he said, do you want to know about these chains? You think Caesar put me here, don't you? You think your boss put me here? I'm here because Jesus Christ of Nazareth put me here. And I'm actually in these chains at this very moment in space and time and history. Right now, because I'm meant to be chained to you right now and telling you this, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of heaven and of earth. And I'm telling you, listen to me, he's coming back. And he's going to sit on this throne. And his kingdom will be on this earth as it is in heaven. And he's going to reign forever. <laughs> Every day. And he's having these conversations each day. And he's got a new pupil every day, this callous Roman soldier who would have been like a John Wayne type. And he's, he's sitting there, and they're asking questions, and he's saying, look, I want you to know something. I met him, literally. I hated Jesus with a passion. I kept hearing this news about Jesus, and it angered me. And then I heard he died. And I just thought, you know what? He's done. <laughs> He's dead. He, there's this crazy leader. He got executed by the state. The end. And then his followers kept talking and talking. You know what? I hated them too. And I kept coming after them. And I was on my way full of hate to kill Christians. And then I met him. And like a volcano erupting in front of me, his glory, his love for me, in spite of the fact that I hated him, showed up. And therefore, I'm talking to you about this Jesus right now. And you know why? Because if you could experience just one second of this kind of love, you would understand why these chains are really nothing at all. Did any of these people come to faith? I have no idea. We're not actually told that. That's not actually the point. His point is, is the gospel's going out. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, many, are you anybody here familiar with Elizabeth Elliot? A lot of you are missionary, writer, seminary, professor, widowed twice. But before she actually met her first husband, Jim Elliott, her name was Elizabeth Howard. And she served in Ecuador. And she served around, around a people group called the Colorado Indians. And she um, 
was there to learn this language, which was an unspeakable language. She wanted to translate the Bible to them, and, you know, they literally had, they didn't use sounds. They just used unspeakable things. Uh, they didn't have an actual language. So here she is trying to do all this work, and then uh, eventually she met this uh, translator. His name was um, Don Macario, who was incredibly instrumental in getting, you know, a bridge between her and these people. And he was teaching about the language, teaching this, and she's learning, and they're making progress, and all of a sudden he gets tragically murdered. <laughs> just killed. No explanation. And so, you know what? She was so determined. She said, you know, I'm going to stay. I'm going to keep working at this. And so she was looking for sounds and patterns, just trying to do anything and trying to create an alphabet, all to translate the Bible to them. And she actually did it. She had all these documents, these charts, all these different things, and she compiles them into a suitcase, okay? And then she takes them to a missionary who's in this mission house to give to him because he's the one who's actually going to take all this work, translate it into the Bible, and lo and behold, the suitcase gets stolen. Stolen. A year's worth of hard work in a remote location. A tragedy happens, and her, this work is just vaporized like the Death Star. And what do you say? She said this. You know, all the questions as to the validity of my calling or much more fundamental, God's interest in the Colorado's salvation and in any missionary work, Bible translation, or any other kind, all these questions came again to the fore. I was dumbfounded to realize that all the work was down the drain. I was furious at whoever stole the suitcase and undoubtedly discarded the priceless paper. Do you hear that? It hurt. She's confused. She's asking questions. It, it, she's not denying that it's hard, but and then she continued. And she said, but this grief, this sorrow, this total loss that empties my hands and breaks my heart, I may, if I will, accept, and by accepting it, if I find in my hands something to offer, and I so give it back to him who in mysterious exchange gives himself to me. Gives himself to me. To be a follower of the crucified means sooner or later on a personal encounter with the cross, and the cross always entails loss. The great symbol of Christianity means sacrifice, and no one who calls himself a Christian can evade this stark fact. When we get to verse 14, we are told some nice things happen. There's a little bit of a silver lining. Apparently, the other Christians that were in prison saw Paul's boldness, and you know what? They were inspired, and they start preaching the gospel, and there's a movement happening. That's all really good, but you know, when you're really hurting, even good news like that is not enough, is it? It's not. He, it's not enough. How in the world did Paul have this resolute assurance in the face of such unexpected plans, interrupted plans? You know, the interesting thing is, is, the truth is, I wrote this on Thursday. I write the sermons on Thursday. I do all the research earlier in the week, and then I just devote the day. And as I'm writing, I'm believing this. I mean, I am caught up in this. I am feeling it. And about two hours after I'm done writing, I get, you know, some news just, just sunk me. It was hijacked emotionally. I forgot all of that, and then I watched the Gators stink it up against Utah to add to it, right? and then forgetting every bit of this. How can we hold on to this? How can we believe in the face of anything that there's a defiant joy? Well, let's take a look at the second point. Now, uh, we're not going to get too much into this because uh, there's, you know, we'll talk, cover this in like two weeks, but 
As hard as it is to believe, so here's the Apostle Paul. He's in chains. He's facing Roman opposition. He's in the prison. It's all already tough. But, you know, ironically, outside the prison, he was facing opposition too from friendly fire. As hard as it is to believe, there were preachers out there who were free, not incarcerated, who saw this as an opportunity to take advantage of the Apostle Paul. Uh, to sort of advance their own ministry influence, uh, you know, gain a bigger following. Hey, Paul's in jail. Let's take our shots at him. Listen to me. I'm your guy. Stop listening to Paul. And why? Well, it happens all the time, right? When you're this great leader and you have success, it's very typical. All of a sudden, if you excel at something and you shine, people around you get jealous, don't they? And that was actually happening. In fact, we're all guilty of it. Sometimes you, some of the people you can't stand in life, it seems like they do everything well, and they never break a sweat when they do it. But see, Paul, he was breaking a sweat. His life was hard. He was shipwrecked. He was snake bit. He was, got lashed. He had stones thrown at him to kill him. Bandits. I mean, wild animals. All these different things. Yet in, in spite of how hard his life was, the apostle Paul was very successful. And many people envied that. They resented the fact that everybody knew about Paul. They're jealous. They're envious. Uh, they resented his influence. And they were filled with this competitive spirit and this very self-ambitious thing. And Paul admits, again, in verse 17, it hurt. I mean, friendly fire is some of the hardest things to deal with. It, it hurts. Why are you doing that? But Paul, again, he's looking at that, and he's still rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing in the face of such what feels evil opposition? Well, Paul, one thing's for clear real quick. We'll get into this uh, in two weeks from now. But Apostle Paul in no way is saying envy and rivalry and jealousy and false motives are good things. We'll, we'll read this just a couple weeks. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Uh, count others greater than yourself. Paul knows that in communities like this, self-ambition and envy and rivalry and arrogance and a lack of humility and competitive spirits destroy community. It destroys it. It destroys friendships. And, and when he talks about the works of the flesh, he talks about sorcery and all kinds of things, drunkenness and more. Uh, here he is, and in the same breath, he's talking about all these things. He also mentions envy and rivalry and jealousy and division. And the interesting thing is the Apostle Paul does take on critics elsewhere. In Galatians 5, to his opponents there, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I said that, I'd get fired, okay? Like, tell us what you really think about these people, Paul. <laughs> That's pretty strong, okay? Wow. Even in Philippians, he says, watch out for those dogs, his opponents, these other opponents. But in all those cases, Paul's taking that on because they were preaching a different gospel. They were preaching a gospel of works and of, you know, you have to be circumcised to be a Christian and follow Jewish law and all these different things. If you, if you weren't preaching the gospel, the Apostle Paul would come and that bulldog would come right out of him and he'd come after you. But here, in this case, he's rejoicing. 
in spite of the fact that these people have terrible motives in what they're doing. And here's why, because Apostle Paul knows that they're guilty of having really bad motives, but they're not guilty of preaching a different gospel. They were preaching the gospel, and as everything is falling apart around him in his life, the Apostle Paul is saying the ends don't justify the means, but here he is. He's saying, if, the, if my chains can't stop the gospel from going out, then neither can poor motives of these people on the outside start it, stop it either. And neither should we. Uh, this week I was listening to an interview. Does anybody know who Sam Albury is? A few of you might. Uh, he was interviewed on Russell Moore's podcast. And Sam Albury, um, you know, he used to work for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And, of course, when I, if I had said the name Ravi Zacharias five years ago, what words would come out of your mouth? Some of you would say, well, brilliant, uh, great apologist, great teacher, impactful, gifted, changed my life, all those kinds of words, right? And then now, if I say it today, there's probably things I couldn't say from the pulpit. This is a man who had an incredibly shameful uh, double life. And at one point, um, you know, he loved this ministry, loved the people he worked with, but he had to resign. He just couldn't do it because he felt like the board was not protecting victims. Now you got a category. And protecting their image instead. So he had to leave. All right. But through the years since then, Sam Alberry just continues to have people come up to him and say, well, you know, you work for Ravi Zacharias. What, what do you make of this? I became a Christian because of Ravi Zacharias. I would never be a Christian without him. I mean, his teaching, his this, that, and the other. I mean, this man changed my life. He was preaching the truth, and it worked. Like, what do I do with that? And of course, many Christians are struggling today with deconstructing, dealing with things like this all the time. It's a terrible thing. But he answered, and he said this, especially on the podcast interview, he said this, Ravi Zacharias wasn't preaching his truth. He was preaching the gospel truth. And that's why it changed your life. Paul and Sam Alberry are not saying the ends justify the means here, far from it. But rather, again, the Apostle Paul is saying this, Jesus said he will build his church and either chains or even things like this can stop it from happening. Persecution, altered plans, critics, petty rivalries, embarrassing warts on the church of Jesus Christ, shameful things that hurt people. Even that, the gospel is not going to be sunk by it because it's, it's his truth and it's what changes lives. And so let's look at the third. How do we do uh, any of these things? Whether it be the tragic murder of a translator, a suitcase that's stolen, the unexpected twist in your life that you never saw coming in your marriage, the unexplainable ending to your career, the heartbreaking loss of your spouse, the death of a close friend, the unplanned for financial downfall that made you lose your home, the head-scratching ending to a friendship, your child's choices, that if you're being honest, though, you're trying to put a brave face on it, they break your heart every day. An embarrassing mistake that those around you just really can't seem to forget. A betrayal by someone you really trusted. The hits on your reputation. That physical pain in your lower back that just does not want to go away. The losing battles with your addictions. 
an unjust incarceration, a shipwreck, beatings, robbers, people who came in behind you to undo all the hard work of your teaching and relational capital, lashings, beatings, stonings, and on top of that, people who in their envy want to kick you while you're down. Whether it was the Apostle Paul in the first century of the 21st, all of us have had to or, or are walking through some sort of fiery trial, aren't we? And all of us have faced the pain of unjust treatment from others who seek to really just hurt us. And the Apostle Paul rejoiced in the face of that. Not because he was putting on a brave face or singing, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> but what Paul is doing, if you missed this sermon, hear this. Paul was demonstrating for what life can actually look like when it is built on the hope of the gospel advancing on earth as it is in heaven. What is a life built on the truth of the gospel is truly capable of? Joy in the face of incredible challenging and perplexing circumstances. He wanted his audience to know it was real for him, and it is real for us, and it can be. How do we do it? Is it truly possible to have this kind of joy that is unsinkable? A joy that can shed needed tears without being sunk by grief? A joy that can lament unjust treatment at the hands of others while not being consumed by the injustice? A joy that no longer defines life by biggest regrets or deepest wounds? A joy that experiences an indifference to physical death. We'll see that next week. The answer is yeah. It actually is possible for every single person here in this room. It is only possible when you build your life on Christ. And that might seem like an incredibly trite answer. But when we stop and consider that this sentence was written by a man who faced several lifetimes worth of tragedy and are uttering these very words from prison while his reputation is being attacked on outside and freedom. Then we begin to understand that this is not trite, it's a lifeline, a true lifeline. Because a life based on finding one's joy in Jesus does not deny that circumstances are hard but is able to rejoice regardless because it's not the circumstances that elicit joy, it's Jesus himself. What in the world can capture our hearts to truly set our joy on this Jesus? It's to really understand where joy starts. I mean, we're told that Jesus had joy. Of course he did. It's one of the fruits of the spirits, but it's where that joy was set. It's remarkable. Because he, too, was sitting on the cross, being ripped apart limb by limb, being mocked by the people below him, and, more than anything, experiencing innumerable hells. And Jesus Christ had had heaven, and he left it. He had his heavenly Father, and in some cosmic way, he's not having that experience somehow that I can't define on the cross in that moment. Instead, he's experienced the wrath. And he left everything, everything to walk through this fire 
He's chained like a criminal when he's arrested. He's literally nailed to a cross. Because God, like, he's not getting off. And all these people are mocking him because his ministry was growing and theirs was shrinking. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us the thing that allowed Jesus to endure the cross was joy. Joy. Unsinkable joy. And what would that joy be? Well, we're told it's us. For the joy that was set before him is literally every single person I'm looking in in this room right now. Like, you're the joy that literally allowed him to do this. If it wasn't for this joy that I'm looking at, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross. That is true. He couldn't have done it. He would have gotten off that cross, you see? He would have prayed for a legion of angels to come at his disposal at that moment and get right off. But it is no stretch or sappy, twisted the imagination to say, literally, this is the joy that Jesus had. And the question is, is do you believe that? Do you have a taste of it? Do you, do you know what it's like to have that kind of joy for you, that Jesus literally enjoys you? That we're told, be prophesied, God the Father would rejoice over you with singing? Why? Because of this. Because of this. He left everything so that we could have this kind of joy. You're going to spend eternity if you're a Christian enjoying God. It's the chief end of man to enjoy his great joy over us. But that's not something you have to wait on. That is something you can have. If you have that in the face of anything you're going through, you literally have everything you need to face whatever that trial is, to face all that comes against us. Let me now invite those who are coming up to help with elements. Here's a meal to enjoy God's joy over you and your growing joy for him. Your joy first must begin in his enjoyment of you, his joy for you. And that's what this meal is. If you're not a Christian, then I would encourage you to really ask the question, is the joy of Jesus your life? Is this something you want? We can help you with that. We'd love to help you today. But we want to encourage you to let this meal pass. But if you are a Christian, and I don't care what your week looks like, this meal is for you because you're the joy set before him. And here is what the Apostle Paul said. He said, For I received from the Lord, but I also pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the message preached right there in a Roman prison. I'm going to pray for us, and I'll let you, know, you guys can come up as soon as I'm done. Lord, we, we pray that we could believe this message. I do not just pray for today, but this series. I do pray. I, I want to boldly ask for life change. Lord, I know that all of us here, we just crumble and wilt when plans are changed, the unexpected happens, the confusing happens, or when we're facing opposition from people, and it hurts. And it really hurts. 
Nevertheless, Paul's not our example. It's the gospel that is the fuel of what a life could look like if we really believed it. And I do, I want to ask for that in your name. And may this meal feed us to get there. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.